Are your school days out of sight? When you took English, art, and math, what's your favorite Fahrenheit? How sour are the grapes of wrath? Do you need a challenger for discussing Salinger? Do you love the written word? What happened to the mockingbird? Our show is just beginning, so find a place to sit. These questions will be on the test. It's time for sophomore lit. Welcome back to Sophomore Lit, where we reread your 10th grade reading list. I'm John McCoy, and with me is returning co-host Shannon Camp. Yes, yes, stop your groaning, subscribers. I'm back, and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> well, Shannon, uh, I think people know you by now, but in case they, in case for some reason this is the very first episode of Sophomore Lit someone picked up, why don't you tell uh, the people out there about yourself? Uh, I am a an actor and writer and podcaster person uh, here in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, the big project that I'm most known for is probably uh, Little Women, a modern audio drama, which I wrote and starred in, and John was in it too. And it's a modern version of Little Women. And so this time, uh, in, in honor of, of Shannon's uh, theatrical background, we are doing the play Macbeth. It was you who suggested Macbeth, right? No, it was not. You know the famous Shakespeare play that everyone knows, Macbeth. I'm spitting on the ground right now. That's all I will say. <laughs> but I literally was not the one who suggested this. John oh, okay. is teasing you, gentle listeners. He said, you want to talk about Macbeth? And that's pretty much all the ammunition I need. Wait, did um, you mention the name of the famous play Macbeth? I am having a perfectly normal conversation with you. I don't know why you're being so strange. I guess we're not in a theater right now. I guess. Uh, yeah, listeners, I come from a theater background. I come from a pretty hardcore theater background. Like when I went to school at Butler University, we did Shakespeare. We did Chekhov. We did the Greek tragedies. End of list. <laughs> no, no, I'm being un I'm not being fair. We did a lot of fun, diverse stuff like Lorca and a bunch of international stuff. But in terms of classroom study, we definitely did a ton of Shakespeare. And I had very old school professors from the uh, Moscow Art Theater who definitely would not tolerate me just bandying about the name of the Scottish play. <laughs> well, it's it's a wonderful bit of uh, theatrical. Uh... Lore, and I'm sure everyone out there just adores theatrical lore because that's what they're they're tuning in for. I would say if they're a sophomore lit listener, it seems fair enough. But speaking of personal lore, do you mind if I share uh, in the spirit of the podcast my first experience with this particular play? Please do. Uh, long before I got to college and was sort of doing scene work in all of these shows, um... This was actually the first Shakespearean tragedy that I ever studied or saw when I was in the seventh grade. Um, in the sixth grade, we studied and then saw A Midsummer Night's Dream. And then they were like, hey, why don't we just escalate things and give these kids, you know, McBee. And uh, the Chicago Shakespeare Theater was doing a production of it that year. So we got to read it and then go see it live on stage. And I don't really think our teachers knew what they were getting into. Like, I mean this so legitimately because, you know, I'm a 30-year-old woman now and I've seen a lot of theater, internationally even, 
This was one of the most violent productions I have ever been to in my entire life. What, what, what year was this? Oh, God. You know, I was in the seventh grade, so it must have been 2004-ish. Yeah, that scans. There was this real vogue at that time for doing crazy, over-the-top Shakespeare. There was that... That, that movie, The Tempest, that came out at the time. There was the Titus Andronicus. Oh, don't even get me started on Titus. I have a real distaste for that play. And actually, as I was rereading Mac for this podcast recording, I was like, I love that he is a little bit more restrained with the violence in this show than the just macabre fest that is Titus. But anyway, um, I feel like I can just speak to can I can just I can just talk about the play openly right we're not trying to avoid spoilers no 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 I I, I no no spoilers for a play that uh was probably first produced in 1606 and I assume you know even if you don't have like maybe the most comprehensive knowledge of the bard's body of work this is one of the popular ones like we're not talking about Timon of Athens or the Merry Wives of <laughs> Windsor right now so um, I feel like I'm in safe territory but um, right from the top it started with the scene of uh, you know, Macbeth gutting this enemy soldier just like they talk about it in the dialogue from his groin to his throat, which is something that's talked about in the dialogue, but it's not like normally seen on stage. So like right off the bat, we were like, whoa, okay, I guess it's this kind of show. But then things really, really ramped up um, basically at the act of, end of act the first half. It's so my instinct to call things act one and act two, but I know that's not how it is in Shakespeare. At the end of the first half, when they had the banquet and Banquo's ghost came out of the table he just smiled and there was just blood just pouring out of his mouth all over everything. It was actually a very cool effect with him coming out of the table. But then we didn't really hit the peak until the second half of the show after intermission um, when Lady Macbeth offed herself. They had her in a... This is so fucking goofy in early 2000s. Pardon my French, dear listeners. <laughs> um, it was a translucent bathtub? You know, like a see-through bathtub. <laughs> it's just, there's no other way to describe it. So then she, you know, cuts her wrists and the water gets all red. And, you know, for seventh graders, this was working incredibly well. We were like, whoa, this play is gnarly, man. Um, I grew up in Illinois, not California. I don't know where that accent came from. Uh, but then, uh, the, really, the piece de resistance, and I think the reason the production has always stood out in my mind, was after the scene where Lady Macduff and Macduff's children are uh, killed. In whatever scene follows that, there's a character who's, like, thinking about their deaths, and they have these incredibly lifelike rubber prosthetic dummies of the actors playing Lady Macduff and the two very young child actors who are actual children who are in the show made and covered them in like blood and viscera, I guess, and hung them upside down by their ankles from the rafters of the stage and lit them with like strobe lights. So it looked incredibly real. 
And, you know, in your mind, you know that it can't really be the actors because it would be too physically grueling. But that's the only thing keeping you from knowing that it really is those people. I mean, especially when you have uh, very young child actors involved you know this is the type of situation where you have three or four kids cycling in and out of each role because of labor laws um then it is very shocking to see wow. yeah so that that was my introduction to the scottish play and it's definitely stuck with me ever since well you know i just read it in, in high school so um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's fun to read. It's a great, it's a great one. I mean, it's really one of my favorites of his. It's it's very short. It's very short, and the action is extremely easy to follow. It's short. There's not a lot of fat on the bone. I mean, this is maybe a hot take, but I am not usually a fan of these comic relief characters in his tragedies. The gatekeeper, the grave digger, you know, who's a fudge, who's in charge of keeping a dog on a leash and whatever play. I don't enjoy these comic relief characters he creates by and large, and I appreciate that he is restrained with that and kind of restrained, I think, with everything in this play. I think it's probably the play that's the most dense with Shakespearean quotations. Yeah. I think that there are more quotes from Hamlet, but Hamlet is like three times as long. I immensely prefer this to Hamlet. Not that it's a contest, but <laughs> it's worth saying. Uh, you know, I, I read this when I was in high school, and then I reread it, and I think in college when I was taking a class on Shakespeare uh, in performance, and I don't think I've actually read it in the years since. So when I fired up the old Kindle to, to read uh, this play... I thought I was going to have to remind myself of a bunch of stuff, and it turns out I remembered everything, because there there, there really aren't many uh, subplots. There's a very small core group of, of main characters, and as you say, the, 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 the play just gets underway right away. It, 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 it doesn't mess around, and I, and I had thought that there was more of a slow burn at the beginning with... Um, Lady Macbeth trying to convince uh, Macbeth to kill uh, Duncan. Oh my God. I know that scene like the back of my hand just from acting classes, but yeah. It happens in like the first 10 minutes of the play or yeah, something like that. Yeah, very soon she's like, I would tear that my breast out of that babe's mouth and bash his head out on the pavement, honey. Um, <laughs> I, I think... I mean this in the best way with this play like what you see is what you get he's really like laying his cards on the table I really love how everything feels so tied together in such a satisfying way like you know a popular thing to do with Shakespeare is to find a play and to pull out some little thread and then people will make a bunch of conspiracy theories about it because it's something he barely explained and there are a couple of those that exist for Macbeth, uh, most notably the third murderer theory, which we can talk about when we get to that part of the show. But in general, a lot of that does not exist for this show. And I think it's because, just like you said, we have a core group of characters. Everyone's destinies and plots are very interwoven. And even though this outside world exists for the characters, the world feels so insular and contained. I understand from my very perfunctory research on this, that 
the the one theory about this is that this was uh, this was copied from a prompt book, uh, and it might be a shortened version of the play to begin with. That that Shakespeare. That wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> they were constantly like throwing out scenes and stuff, so like Hamlet could be four hours long or it could be an hour and a half depending on how many scenes they threw out and uh this play appears in the first folio and a lot of that was copied from um from actors prompt books so they it could be that at one time there was a longer version of this play although i don't really know what else it would contain um because it, it just it just clips along, you know. We we all know the the opening scene. Uh, we have Macbeth and Banquo coming across the the three weird sisters out in the 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 moors or the heath or whatever. Macbeth is being uh, greeted as Thane of Cawdor and saying, "You're going to be king hereafter." Well, you will produce kings hereafter, but you will not be well, king. Well, Macbeth will be king hereafter. Banquo will not, but he will produce kings. So they get one thing right. He 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 does inherit the title Thane of Cowder because the, they've they've just defeated the previous Thane who had been plotting against the king with, I don't know, Norwegians or something, and. So he writes a letter to his wife and says, hmm, this, the strangest thing happened to me. I was out, you know, I was out, you know, murdering people for the king. And these three uh, women told me I was going, I was going to be king. And she just immediately runs with it. She's like, sure, great. Let's go. Let's go, baby. Let's go kill the king. I think it's pretty easy to interpret it as she just needed a reason to start convincing him. Like, this is very much in her nature. Because I think so much of this play, what struck me when I was reading it this time was like, nature versus nurture sort of feels like a reductive way to put it, but like, fate versus your own actions and fate, aka nature, almost always winning out if not always uh and like lady macbeth just is so this person it's like what she says in that scene we were talking about her first big scene with her husband like uh that discussion of like if it was what it took for you to be king i would take my newborn child and like bash their brains out and she's totally emotionless about that like I think that's Shakespeare's way of commenting on like what would have been seen as very much women's nature at the time to be a loving and caring and attentive mother and Lady Macbeth is a very unnatural woman she does not have that instinct at all instead she has ambition this play being one of the the late Shakespeare plays this wasn't written under Elizabeth. This was written under King James I, who was a uh, patron to what the, they were called the King's Players. The King, I, what were they called at that point? Shakespeare's troop uh, got um, royal patronage, and this was. Uh, most people agree that this was written um, after the gunpowder gun plot, as a uh, as a celebration of of of, of James because. People believed that Banquo had been the ancestor of James in this play. 
yeah, huge Scottish connection with that guy, to say the least. It seems as though Banquo actually did not exist his- historically, but, you know, that doesn't matter. The, uh, Shakespeare is trying... Shakespeare expects the audience to know when the witches say to Banquo, uh, you will be the, uh, the father of kings, that they're talking about James down the line. In some ways, it makes sense to paint... Uh, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth with such flat colors of being, you know, ambitious of being disloyal. It's like the, these are these these terrible, as you say, they're, they're the inversions of what are supposed to be the ma- masculine and feminine virtues. And we have very literal foils for them in the show in the form of Lord Macduff and Lady Macduff, who are the examples of. Um, of, you know, nobly persevering, even though they they get the the bad end of the stick themselves, they are not going to let go of their their loyalty to the king, uh, and Lady Macduff is not going to uh, let go of her love of children, even though uh, unfortunately that doesn't do them any good in the end. Yeah, they have a very, and again, this is not like my own personal beliefs to make this very clear, um, but in Shakespeare's, you know, times understanding of gender dynamics, they have a very natural relationship with each other and with their children and with their role in society. And that was just what really struck me, like I said, when I was reading this time around, like, Thinking about how this text uh, kind of talks about, gosh, it's hard to put it into words. I guess what people deserve and, yeah, how that plays out in terms of fate. I, I thought just thought that was very striking. This time reading it through, I was really struck by how everyone was fully themselves hitting the pavement the shakespeare one of the reasons why people point to shakespeare as the beginning of modern literature is because he was famous for writing scenes in which characters spoke aloud what they were thinking and we get to see a person at odds with themselves with a person thinking through their plans debating whether they want to take one course of action or another there's this kind of the this human heart in conflict with itself uh thing about shakespeare um there there's none of that here the, the, there is no conflict uh, before they kill the king um after they kill the king uh there's remorse there is paranoia there is this creeping feeling that if they got away with it someone else is going to do it to them um, and, and, and so the, the, the action as such happens after the, the, the decision is made. I agree. It's, it's interesting, you know, this, this play, it doesn't <laughs> plot along a traditional Hollywood three act structure. Let's put it that way, because as you said, in some ways, like, the biggest, most dramatic uh, action is the inciting action and happens so early in the course of the story. And then everything else from there is the fallout. So it's almost like we get what what might be like the end of a second act climax in a modern story at the end of what we might consider to be the first act. 
now that I'm 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 a, a, an old man, what I find most amusing in Shakespeare are the various um, uh, stage directions, because there's so few stage directions in, in Shakespeare. I was about to say what stage directions? I mean, we all love Exit Pursued by a Bear, but <laughs> I actually prefer to read from the first folio because I feel that many modern editions insert too much of their own editorial preference in stage direction. Right. No, that that that's that's certainly the case. But but that's why I I'm always fascinated when there is a a, a notation a, st- a stage direction because I assume what's happening there is that's a very important set piece. There's going to be some effect there that's important to note. At the beginning, uh, the witches, there's a, there's a, a stage note that says, or direction that says, witches vanish. And that makes me think, there must have been some, like, very spectacular way that they did that, you know, at, at the time. They they probably had a puff of smoke and they fell through the, the trap door. Trap door. I mean... That does it for modern audiences, as far as I can tell. <laughs> I went to see Wicked a couple of weeks ago, and that's what happened at the end of that play, and everyone <laughs> freaking loved it, and I was one of them. No, I completely agree with that. I It is very tantalizing. I guess maybe I have a tendency to feel a bit defensive about stage directions in Shakespeare because I often feel that they are the product of like modern editors more so than his actual work you know what i mean that's not an example but in general i have a knee-jerk negative reaction to them well you're also you're also a post stanislavski actor and they there's this i think that anyone who came up after in in theater after the 50s was probably told at one time by their acting teacher that the first thing you do when you get a script is you cross out all the stage directions oh yeah oh my gosh yeah it's it's your responsibility to find the character's motivation and it's your responsibility to make those strong choices that's very much like peter brooks the empty space that book about direction that everyone reads um yeah totally that uh, absolutely there is that i don't know i guess i like how spare it is without the stage direction like it's funny to mention Exit Pursued by a Bear, which is from A Winter's Tale, which is one of the problem plays. I have mostly seen problem plays in the past few years just because I think that's what companies are interested in producing right now because they see it as like, oh, it's not overdone. We'll do we'll have Robert Fall direct A Winter's Tale. And, you know, we haven't done A Winter's Tale here in 50 years. So that makes sense. But then you go see them and you're like, well... I understand why this is so little produced. Like, I think that's what I really like about Mac is like, I like that there is very little to no quote unquote comic relief. I like that we are sort of in this like relentlessly bleak, just sort of uh, just going, moving relentlessly towards our main character's fate and like his end i really like how everything ties into one plot and we don't have a bunch of random subplots because i feel like sometimes those are the bard's worst impulses (laughs) (laughs) act four scene one which is the second big scene with the witches uh where they're going to give their second set of uh of prophecies for macbeth 
that starts out with the with in in the scene note as saying in the middle a boiling cauldron so there's this is um you know shakespeare as everyone knows you know the 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 globe that kind of approach there was a lot of um people sitting around looking around saying like well here we are in vienna here we are in Florence, here we are wherever, you know, oh, look at the woods out there, and you're supposed to, like, take it as red. It's, I find it interesting when he specifies very specifically there's going to be this, um, this set piece, and that's the, the cauldron, of course, is where the apparitions emerge from. So this is a big, uh, this is a big moment for the for them, you know. I, I, this is this is going to get the groundlings up and and cheering, you know, when when the various you know, like the the what is it the the dead head with the armor on it comes up or the bloody child comes up and all these things. I, I, I yes, I, spectacle. It is, and and there's even a a um a uh, stage direction that says music and a song, black spirits and etc. Well, there's this is something that is not often talked about until you kind of get into the nitty gritty of Shakespeare study. There's so many songs in his plays. So many passages were written to be songs or music. I mean, to go back to another problem play, when I did As You Like It, I think we had at least three full on song performances because... It's not something that's being grafted in. There are all these written songs. The the reason I I like these these sections is because I imagine that we have expectations about how Shakespeare is performed, but these were <laughs> these were general entertainments, and they came with uh, mu- musical numbers. They came with introductions of people like coming out with instruments and stuff especially these later plays the ones that were done for uh king james they were off these ones were often performed in court in closer quarters and so there would be chamber music there would be these kinds of inter- interstitial things and i just like that idea you know I, I i people take shakespeare so seriously that i like the idea that there was a bit of vaudeville going on in shakespeare Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, if people are going to be standing there for hours, like we think of them as like, oh, they were so hard up for entertainment, they'd watch anything. But like, I really (laughs) don't think that was it at all. I think if you're going to be standing in a freaking pit with a bunch of other people for hours and hours, there needs to be spectacle. There needs to be effects. There needs to be music. There has to be things that you wouldn't be able to see in your everyday life. You know, it's the exact same reason why my father took me to see Wicked two weeks ago. (laughs) Exactly. Nothing has changed. And that's what I that's what I love about his plays. I mean, obviously, I'm sure it goes without saying for, you know, any show of his you could talk about on Sophomore Lit. There is this element of universality. But what I really like about uh, the Scottish play or Midsummer or something like that is I really enjoy the shows where he digs into just like straight up magic and supernatural elements. I think it's so much fun. I I love everything to do with uh, the Weird Sisters in this play just on the page. And then when you see it performed, they are often the best part of the show as well. So Yeah, yeah let's talk a little bit about the Weird Sisters because I, I do think that 
especially in recent years there has been a lot more focus on them as as characters in in shakespeare in the play they're kind of inscrutable there's like there's no clear reason why they do what they do and the question is sort of are they doing this to mess with macbeth are they doing this because they themselves are agents of fate and they are just as much bound up in this uh inescapable fate as macbeth it, it, they're, they're very strange and they also talk to hecate uh which is is very weird too yeah to me there's like it's hard to have a wrong interpretation of them because i enjoy pretty much both of those things you both talked about like the idea that they are just vessels for fate is interesting and the idea that they are being like mischievous and kind of intentionally leading him astray is interesting and it's actually also really easy and possible to marry those two ideas I think like they know what's going to happen so they make it happen in like a way that's as shitty as possible for Macbeth Um, I really like that idea too uh, I will try my best not to get too, uh, you know, off track because this is not a movie podcast, but um, the tragedy of Macbeth from 2021, which was directed by one of the Coen brothers, I forget which one, is absolutely worth everyone's time, um, in large part because the British stage actress who plays the Weird Sisters, who it is just one person um, for the most part. Obviously, sometimes they double or triple her, but for the most part, she is just shown as one person. Um, She gives a really incredible performance. And I have seen so many different takes on the Weird Sisters, like, in productions over the years. It's becoming more and more common to have them all be played by one performer, and I've also seen multiple different versions where they are like different figures from the different stages of life, I guess is the way I would describe it. Like one is a very little boy who's like meant to represent, um, you know, Banquo's future king descendants, stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, it is it is really interesting to me any way you want to read it makes sense because they are so abstract they are associated with the the norns the uh, norse uh fates the three women who sew everyone's um lifelines there's this tradition in depictions of witches of having the maiden mother and crone together and so sometimes they're done that way that's not specified in Shakespeare but again there's no there's no wrong answers here I guess yeah I think that's the beauty of Shakespeare honestly is that because it's not specified we can we can do whatever we want to a certain extent now you mentioned how much you don't like these little comic uh, actors but there there is in this uh, in this play there is a scene with the porter I think the Porter is fine for his one scene, but if that scene were any longer or any more, I would have a problem with him. And I do feel that people who play the gravedigger in Hamlet chew the scenery a bit. Okay, there, I said it. The Porter is the one scene that uh, people point to to say, well, this was definitely a play that was written 
in some ways in response to the gunpowder plot. The porter talks about letting in an equivocator, a farmer, and oh shoot, someone else, these people into hell. And when he's talking about the equivocator, he's talking about a Jesuit. The Protestants in in England had the this idea that Jesuits were out there trying to teach people to lie because there was a doctrine of equivocation. If telling the truth would uh, cause something unjust to happen, you should find a way to um, tell only enough truth to satisfy you, your honor and God's honor that you do not lie before yourself and God, but you are under no obligation to help someone in an injustice. And the Protestant view was that that was, uh, you know, those, those evil Catholics telling people how to, to lie. And, <laughs> and of course, the, the, when, when Guy Fawkes tried to, to blow up Parliament, there was all this like, well, he's Catholic. He obviously was in the hands of, of evil Jesuit assassins and plays all this stuff. It's, it's very bad. I don't, I don't, I, I don't like this, but, but it is there. And one of the things that's interesting to me about that all is the people who equivocate the most in this play are the, the, the weird sisters. They're the ones who say one thing that implies something, but they're actually withholding just enough of the truth that uh, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, you know, get the wool pulled over their eyes, and they, they you know, they, they think, oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm safe. Wo- you know, trees don't move. Pe- men are born from women, whatever. Um, and of course, the there's this kind of delight in the audience finding out how the uh, fate comes true anyway. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think we, as people throughout history, have always loved to see others hoisted by their own petard. And this play is a record example of that happening. Um, I think, you know, putting aside my own feelings about some of these jokes and whatnot, feeling a little bit out of place in the tragedies sometimes... I like the Porter scene because it adds to this feeling that I mentioned before that the characters are trapped in a very insular, walled world. Like, I saw some complaints about the new Macbeth movie looking like a video game where everything just vanishes into the fog once you walk past a certain point. But to me, that is actually kind of almost like an interesting thematic thing to play with for this show because it feels that way. It feels like if you do walk enough steps past the castle, you might vanish into the ether. You know, Macduff (laughs) and his party, they escape from, you know, the area where the rest of the characters are, the region. I don't even know how to refer to it. Um, But then they immediately come back when anything needs to get done and they're punished harshly for leaving. Like when Macduff escapes, his whole family is immediately brutally slaughtered. And I do think that that claustrophobic feeling of like we are all stuck in here together really kind of gives a helpful context to... Macbeth and Lady Macbeth's ambition because they're not modern characters where it's like 
you know, people love to transpose Macbeth onto a big corporation or something for a show, but it's it's not that. There is no other place for them to rise up the ranks. This is it. I, I love what you say about not being able to escape the castle. Macbeth kills Duncan in Macbeth's castle. You know, that, that, that again is a uh, perversion of hospitality. But everything seems to be happening in this castle, and uh, and the minute uh, you know that uh, Duncan is found dead, Macbeth runs out and kills the two guards to you know say, "Oh, it was them," and everyone just buys it. I guess um, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of people taking things on faith in this in this uh, play. Or are there? I mean, like, I've also seen it played that everyone is suspicious of them to some extent, but it's like, what can you do? They are in charge now. It's very interesting. I mean, if I can talk about the third murderer a little bit here. Oh, yeah, sure. Please. Um, So... For the record, just like I don't love comic relief characters, I don't love Shakespearean conspiracy theories. I'm not one of those people who's like, but what was his real identity? Was he Francis Bacon? Like, that's, I promise that's not me. But it is interesting just because sometimes Shakespeare throws in little details that I think we are perhaps meant to read more into. And sometimes I think he's just a little bit lazy and like forgets the continuity of his own writing so we can play with ideas that he may have never meant to be there and one of the big things is um you know uh Macbeth sends these three guys out to kill Fleance but we only ever see two of them on stage speaking after the botched assassination attempt we have the first murderer and the second murderer so the identity of the third murderer has been, you know, hotly contested over the years. And there is definitely um, an idea that it's Macbeth himself, which you kind of have to get into like the nitty gritty of like, who's arriving at the banquet when and when Shakespeare says it started 7 p.m. Does that mean everyone shows up at 7 p.m.? Um, but none of that really matters. I just think it's interesting, like... Uh, that leaves kind of like some space in the narrative. Like if we were to think of this almost as a whodunit for other characters to be up to shady dealings and just to use a it as an example, I've seen other productions do other things with the third murderer, but because it is an example that sophomore listeners, uh, sophomore, <laughs> sophomore lit listeners could go out and watch themselves in the new Macbeth movie, um, the third murderer is Ross. And Ross becomes a character, you know, probably out of all the guys, Ross, I think, is one of the least actually defined on the page in terms of character traits and what he's up to. So what they do with Ross in this new movie is they make him um, almost like a manifestation of the weird sisters like he can shape shift and he is supernatural and he can turn into a flock of birds and he is kind of watching and moving between groups you know he can go to lady Macduff and talk to her all nice but then the murderers come right after that because he showed them where she was i i really want to see the 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 movie i i know that it was 
everyone uh, in my t my various timelines was saying that it was a great film. I, I will have to look it up sometime. I do think The Third Murderer is one of those weird things that it, it, it dangles there, and it could be uh, that he's left over from an earlier draft. It could be that he's from one of these cut scenes. It could be that he was played by the same actor as uh because you know people would double and triple uh, absolutely rules it could be that he was played by the same actor as macbeth and that the people in the audience would delight in that they would la laugh at that it was kind of there as a uh, as a joke you know it's it's hard to say i'm much more inclined to think it's something like that than an like intentional whodunit moment but i just think it's so fun and interesting how the text does open up and breathe like that and how people can put their own you know wild interpretations into it like when have we ever seen ross transform into a flock of birds before <laughs> never that i can think of that wouldn't even be possible on stage but like i and then this is again this is not a podcast about the movie i just like how many different ways there are to present a story that feels so streamlined like you know what I mean? Normally when we were talking about, like, oh, there's so many different ways we could do this, we could be talking about like Les Miserables and like, well, what scenes will you include, John? Well, I'll include these and I'll cut these and blah, blah, blah. And I want to play Fontaine like this, et cetera, et cetera. You don't really have all those options like this for a play as spare as this one. And yet there are so many different interpretations. And I think that's because um, of the supernatural elements and because of the characters like very murky emotional states leaving so many things ambiguous yeah I think the other thing um, the other thing that we, we, touch, we both touched on this earlier but I'd just like to bring back is this is a play that is about fate and just like when you do when you see a greek tragedy there is this strange tension between the fact that you know saw that um oedipus has had his fate foretold for him and he tries to escape it but he ends up confirming it that that the audience is supposed to feel uh both judgmental and um and sympathetic you know there's this kind of a sense that what could he do you know he was screwed by the gods and and in this case there's something really funny about this play to me that in the first sequence when macbeth and banquo meet the witches the witches tell them straight out macbeth you're going to get to be king but you're not going to have a, a, a lineage and uh banquo you're not going to get to be king but you're going to have the lineage Macbeth says, "Hey, they got the th they got the Thane of Cowder thing right. I'm going to be king, and he gets to be king. And then he's like, you know, fate seemed inescapable for me, but maybe it's not so inescapable for 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 Banquo. You know, like maybe this guy's fate will be different. I, I always feel like if you believe the one, why don't you believe the other? Yeah, it's very much a hubris thing. I think in the case of his character. And after uh, Lady Macbeth." kills herself there's um the the, the very famous um speech she should have died hereafter yeah as an aside with the, the the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech is like the most 
nihilistic thing that Shakespeare ever has written. And it ends with the t tale, you know, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. At that point, he's sort of resigned to the fact that everything's falling down around him, but he, he's not going to take any responsibility for that at this point he's just saying like well everything's meaningless you know it's a kind of a it's kind of a, a good way out for him i guess and that's a perfect example of what i was talking about too with like differing interpretations specifically the line she should have died hereafter like we could write a book just on all the different ways p people have played that single sentence because it is, uh, you know, not a normal thing to say about your wife. <laughs> so <laughs> there's definitely a lot of d ways people have tried to parse it. And I think their relationship is really fascinating, too, honestly. Like, God, we could do a whole pod just on unpacking the two of them, honestly. Like... I want to know what the plan was because things fell apart so fast. When they start falling apart, um, you know, L L Lady Macbeth starts going crazy, like just in the same way that she became murderous at the drop of a hat. She goes crazy at the drop of a hat. It's not it's not like Ophelia kind of languishing on and on from sequence to sequence or whatever, or or Hamlet doing this slow burn of, is he going crazy? Is he not? Like, she goes cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs right away. The other thing that uh, I, that is so abbreviated about this play is at the very end, when Macduff faces Macbeth down and he says, hey, guess what? I'm a cesarean... Uh, child, so you're gonna die. They run off stage. He comes back with uh, Macbeth's head, and then the play's over. It's like there's no denouement at all. It's just like, okay, great, bye guys. <laughs> I mean, to backtrack briefly to Lady M, I think you could go back to the fate idea there, and it's like. She loses her mind as soon as the deed is done because she has fulfilled her life's purpose. Like, and now there is nothing left for her. So her spark, her animus, whatever was keeping her driving forward is extinguished. Well, um, <laughs> I feel like we're winding down here. Do you have any any last uh, thoughts you you want to leave us with on? Oh on gosh, Macbeth? I didn't I didn't even realize. I was just trying not to interrupt you. Um, oh no no no, we, we don't have to. No wind no down no no. I, it's, it's, we haven't moved in a chronological way for this show at all. So it's I'm just making sure I've covered all of my bases. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a great one, right? Like. Everything I said about that production at the beginning, you know, now from the perspective of a 30 year old in 2022, I'm sort of tee hee heeing and whatnot. But when I was a kid, it, it really did impact me and it made me excited. And I still feel excited when I read this show. Um, there's so many dark corners in it. I guess that's the way I'm going to put it. It's like we have a very clearly illuminated pathway. We can see what's going to happen to Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and fate is, you know, lighting that all. 
but there are all these dark and mysterious corners. And because Lady Macbeth and Macbeth do have this sort of, again, I'm just going to use that word unnatural relationship, there will always be different ways to interpret their scenes and... I guess that's why I love it. I feel like half of this podcast, I've just been saying, well, you could interpret that anyway, which is like not having an opinion. But I mean it in the best way. Like American theater can be so literal. Like if you turn on a faucet, there better be real water running out from the faucet on stage. The audience has to see real water drip, drip, dripping. And I like that (laughs) this play is not that. Thanks again to my co-host, Shannon Camp. Her podcast is Little Women, a Modern Audio Drama. Sophomore Lit is brought to you by The Incomparable Network. Find more funny, smart podcasts online at theincomparable.com. You can write the show at sophomore.literature at gmail.com, or you can join in the discussion, either on the Sophomore Lit Facebook page or the Incomparable Membership Slack. Oh my God, John, I sounded insane, but thank you. (laughs) Drip, 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 and I don't know where that came from.